Hear now our reading from Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 4, beginning with verse 13. I'll be reading from the New Revised Standard Version. Hear the word of the Lord. For the promise that he would inherit the world did not come to Abraham or to his descendants through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. If it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, neither is there violation. For this reason, it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his descendants, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to those who share the faith of Abraham. For he is the father of all of us, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence things that do not exist, hoping against hope, he believed that he would become the father of many nations, According to what was said, so numerous shall your descendants be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was already as good as dead, for he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, being fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Therefore, his faith was reckoned to him as righteousness. Now the words, it was reckoned to him, were not written, were written not for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be reckoned to us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was handed over to death for our trespasses and was raised for our justification. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. What comes to mind when you hear the words crazy beast? <laughs> Maybe the Tasmanian devil or a huge athlete like Dwayne The Rock Johnson, or maybe even a mythological character in a fantasy series like The Lord of the Rings. Well, if you keep up with news in the world of paleontology, you may know that they recently found a crazy beast that lived in the southern hemisphere 66 million years ago. The discovery of this new animal in the fossil record is something that paleontologists are really excited about because it helps fill some gaps in the evolution of mammals. Found on the island country of Madagascar, this critter is an important ancient ancestor, one who walked the earth in the time of the dinosaurs. The discovery of this fossil was truly a game changer. Its official name is Adalatherium, which literally means crazy beast. Here is a picture of the fossil they discovered. And here is an artistic rendering based on the fossil of what it may have looked like. 
As you can see, its forelimbs sit close together like kitten legs, but the hind legs are splayed like a bodybuilder's squat. The animal had ever-growing front teeth and weird back teeth that look like they arrived from outer space. Its skull is unique with a mysterious hole above its snout. Looks pretty crazy, doesn't it? The Adalatherium is special not only because it is unusual, but also because it is so rare. Paleontologists who studied the site where it was found also discovered 20,000 dinosaurs, frogs, and crocodiles. Can you guess how many mammals they uncovered? Only 12, and none were as special as the crazy beast. Just like this fossil was a game changer in the evolution of mammals, in our scripture reading this morning, Paul describes our ancient ancestor, Abraham, as a game changer in the evolution of our faith. His message was unusual and rare because he focused on faith instead of religious law. Paul tells us that God's promise did not come to Abraham or to his descendants through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. And this focus on faith was completely unexpected in the ancient world of Abraham, Sarah, and their descendants. When you look at Abraham, you see a man that was saved by his faith, not by following a bunch of religious rules, but by the way he trusted God. Indeed, it was his trust in God that made him right with God. I want to say that again because it's really important. It was Abraham's trust in God that made him right with God. In the words of the Apostle Paul, Abraham's faith was reckoned to him as righteousness. And in this way, Abraham comes to fill an important gap in the evolution of the people of God from ancient Hebrews to modern Christians. To help us understand this, let's look at Paul's letter to the Romans. He begins this letter in chapter 1, beginning with verse 16, by offering a crystal clear definition of the gospel. He says that the gospel, and I quote, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed through faith for faith. As it is written, the one who is righteous will live by faith. As you can see, faith is at the heart of Paul's understanding of the gospel. Nothing more and nothing less. In fact, he uses the word four times in these two verses. So why this focus on faith? Well, it has everything to do with Paul's spiritual journey, with his encounter with the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus, and his own struggle to understand salvation and be the man he knew God was calling him to be. Scads of books have been written about Paul and his spiritual journey, and I certainly don't have time this morning to go into any detail, but what I do want to share is a little about Paul's struggle with sin. As you may know, Paul was a Pharisee. He was a Jewish religious leader 
and a teacher of the Jewish religious law. In his own accounts, he talks about his attempt to perfectly keep God's law, to follow all the moral rules, to be a good person. But as he got really honest about what was going on inside of him, and really honest about his own behavior, he gained a growing awareness of how he constantly fell short. Despite his best efforts, he could not perfectly keep the religious law or perfectly follow all of the moral rules. In fact, it was even worse than that. When he went deep and looked at the condition of his own heart, he saw something that resembled a war going on inside of him. In a famous passage, he writes this, and I quote, I know that good doesn't live in me, that is, in my body. The desire to do good is inside of me, but I can't do it. I don't do the good that I want to do, but I do the evil that I don't want to do. But if I do the very thing that I don't want to do, then I'm not the one doing it anymore. <clears throat> Instead, it is sin that lives in me that is doing it. So I find that, as a rule, when I want to do what is good, evil is right there with me. I gladly agree with the divine law on the inside, but I see a different law at work in my body. It wages a war against the law of my mind and takes me prisoner with the law of sin that is in my body. <clears throat> it's important to remember that Paul writes this after he encounters Jesus on the road to Damascus, after he comes to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, after he decides to follow Jesus, even after he decides to dedicate his whole life to spreading the good news of Jesus around the known world. Paul writes about this struggle with sin as a fully committed and mature follower of Jesus. <clears throat> Also note that sin seems to be a power that is greater than Paul, something that dominates Paul and wages war in his heart, something that Paul has to actively fight against and even sometimes loses. He's talking about a darkness, a brokenness, a compulsion that constantly derails his best efforts to realize his highest religious and moral ideals. Despite his most heroic efforts, he cannot consistently avoid the things that he knows to be wrong, nor can he consistently do the things that he knows to be right. This must have been a devastating insight in a religious world where most people thought that they were saved by following religious laws and moral rules. And once he gets this insight, he only has two options. First, he can immediately slip into denial and tell himself, it's really not that bad. Don't, don't, beat your, don't beat yourself up. Focus on what you do right, which is a way of trying to forget that he had the inside in the first place. Like trying to unring a bell, this self-destructive strategy tries to make life more tolerable by living a lie. Second, he could fall into despair once he realized that there was a darkness, a brokenness, a sickness inside of him that he could not fix on his own, he could throw his hands up in sweet surrender and say, I give up. <laughs> I can't do this on my own. 
which is exactly what Paul seems to do when he says at the end of this passage, I'm a miserable human being. Who will deliver me from this dead corpse? And at this point, God has him exactly where he wants him, at the end of his rope. Because once Paul stops trying to save himself by good works, he can discover that salvation is a gift that God accomplishes in Jesus and offers to us free of charge as an expression of unconditional love. And this is what happens when Paul goes back and rereads the story of Abraham in the Old Testament. He sees the story in a brand new light, and it creates a revolution of heart and mind. We see this in our scripture reading this morning, taken from, taken from Romans 4. Here he sees, as if for the first time, how Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Paul knew that for thousands of years, the term righteousness have been associated with following a moral code based in religious law. But in his own experience, he came to the end of his rope and realized that he would never ultimately be made right with God by following a bunch of religious and moral rules. And in fact, he came to realize that he was not alone, that no one could be made right with God through moral perfection because no one is morally perfect. For Paul, the story of Abraham was the missing link in his spiritual evolution. If you have ever read the book of Genesis in the Bible, you may remember the story. Abraham and his wife Sarah were very old, way past the age of having children. But then God spoke to Abraham and gave him an incredible promise. You and Sarah will have a son, and this son will change the trajectory of human history. God says, I will make him the father of many nations and bring salvation to the world through him and his descendants. As I just mentioned, this was an unbelievable promise because of Abraham and Sarah's age. Abraham's body, when it came to having children, was as good as dead. And he also knew that Sarah was barren. So how in the world would they have a child? In his own mind, this must have seemed impossible. Nevertheless, Abraham knew a few things about God. He knew that God was the creator of the universe, that God had the power to make something out of nothing. He also knew that God could bring dead things back to life. Finally, looking back over his own life, he knew that God was faithful, that God always kept God's promises. So despite all the evidence to the contrary, Abraham received God's promise and decided to believe it. And not just to believe it as an act of intellectual assent, but to believe in it in the sense of trusting the promise with his life. When reading this story again, it struck Paul like a lightning bolt. This is what made Abraham right with God. Not his perfect obedience to divine law, but his willingness to trust God, to trust God's promises. So simple, yet so profound. 
With this new insight, this new way of thinking about salvation, Paul asks the Roman Christians, What then are we to say was gained by Abraham? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Again, instead of receiving credit for good works, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Like the discovery of the Adalatherium, <laughs> this shift away from religious and moral law to a focus on faith, on trust, was a total game changer. And not just for Paul, but also for us, because it means that the promises of God for a new and better future are available to everyone who believes, who has faith. As it was with Abraham and Paul, so it is with us. Our challenge is not religious or moral perfection, but to trust the God who saves us because He loves us. The trajectory and quality of our entire life boils down to one question. Do I trust God? If we say no, then nothing changes and we are dead in our sins. But if somehow we can find a way to offer a heartfelt yes, then the ground under our feet shifts and everything changes. Do you trust God? Have you entrusted your life to God? For Christians, this means having faith in Jesus, believing and trusting that God saves us in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and offers this salvation to us as a pure gift of love. We recognize and receive this gift by asking God for forgiveness and by trusting in Jesus enough to listen to Him, to believe Him, to follow Him, indeed to pattern our lives after Him. As is the case in human relationships, our capacity to trust Jesus usually starts small and grows over time. As we listen to Him and follow Him one day at a time, one step at a time, we start seeing positive changes in our lives, which give us reasons to keep trusting, to keep following. As our trust grows, as our faith grows, we are transformed into the image of Jesus and more deeply receive the gifts of abundant life. As Paul says, we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus. This simple but profound idea not only created a revolution in Paul, but also a revolution in the Protestant reformer, Martin Luther. Like Paul, Luther also struggled deeply with his own sinfulness. He wanted to be a good and righteous person, so he confessed his sins frequently often daily, and for as long as six hours at a time. But after confessing his sins, he would leave the church and remember other sins that he needed to confess. This frustrated him, and he realized that he could not become righteous by human effort alone. Then Luther reread Paul's letter to the Romans and was struck by a line in the very first chapter, the one who is righteous will live by faith. Luther had read this line before, but God had been working in his life for years, bringing him to a point in which he could see this line in a radically new way. And in a flash, Luther realized that he was not made righteous by his good efforts, but by his faith in Jesus Christ. Luther writes, and I quote, I felt myself to be reborn, to have gone through open doors into paradise. 
this passage of Paul became to me a gate to heaven. Friends, the Protestant Reformation began when Luther made this discovery about the role of faith in making us right with God. He said, if you have true faith that Christ is your Savior, then at once you have a gracious God, and you should see pure grace and overflowing love. Luther was inspired to preach the gospel, a word that means good news, because he saw that the gospel was the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith. So as you can see, faith was a game changer for Abraham, for Paul, and for Martin Luther. It was the missing link that made them right with God, and it can do the very same for us. Simply put, faith is a willingness to trust Jesus and to walk behind Him on the path of life. It should come as a relief to know that we are not saved by works, by perfectly following a set of religious laws or moral rules. Rather, we are saved by grace, which is to say that we are saved because God loves us and refuses to be without us. Furthermore, God accomplishes our salvation in Jesus and offers it to us as a gift. The only thing required of us is to recognize the gift and receive it in faith. With this kind of faith, we can trust God to work through us even when our bodies fail. We can trust Jesus to lead us even when we wander through a thicket of difficult moral choices. We can trust the Holy Spirit to uplift us even when we disappoint ourselves and others. Being righteous does not come from moral perfection, but through our faith in Jesus, our trust in Jesus. As we wrap things up this morning, I want to ask you a question. Do you trust God? Do you really trust God? Have you ever been able to see just how much God loves you and wants to be with you? Have you been able to see the depth and breadth of this love in Jesus, the one who died for you so that you could receive the gifts of forgiveness, reconciliation, and abundant life? Have you received this gift of salvation by putting your whole trust in Jesus and deciding to follow Him daily. If not, I want to give you a chance to do that this morning by leading you in a prayer. If you have never said yes to Jesus, or if you said yes a long time ago and drifted away, this is an opportunity to come home, to get a fresh start, to walk a new path of healing, forgiveness, peace, love, and joy. And what is most important in this moment is your sincere desire to know and love God, your sincere desire to be forgiven, and your sincere desire to follow Jesus. As we reach a moment of decision, this is what is most important to God, your heart. And if you will give Him your heart and trust in what He has already done for you, he will lead you step by step, day by day, into a life overflowing with good gifts. So if you want to receive God's gift of salvation in Jesus, I invite you to join me in the prayer printed on your screen. God, I thank you for loving me. I thank you for sending Jesus, your Son, who makes my salvation possible. I know that I've made mistakes that I have failed you, I have failed myself, 
and I have failed others. Please forgive me of all of my sins and help me get back on track. God, I can't do this on my own, and I ask that you help me. Lift the burdens of guilt and shame. Show me where I need to make amends and help me to find my next steps in following Jesus. I entrust my life to him, and as I follow where he leads, I ask that you show me your will and give me the strength to carry it out one day at a time. Put people in my life that will teach me, guide me, help me, and encourage me. As I follow Jesus, I ask that you give me a new life. Heal my hurts and change my heart so that I can love others as you have loved me. I pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Friends, I want to celebrate with you today if you made a first-time decision to follow Jesus or rededicated your life to Him. Please let me know about this decision by sending me an email through our church website, fumccb.com. I also want to give you a small gift. It's a booklet that I wrote called New Life in Christ, and it will help you understand the decision you made today and how to find your next steps on the disciple's path. Again, this is a gift from me to you. All you need to do is send me your address. Again, to all who made a decision to follow Jesus today, welcome home.